last Christmas, just a few months ago, two months ago now, just about, just a month ago, I guess. Are we in March? I got word that a, a pastor whom I, I have a slight familiarity with, a good friend of mine, knows him very well, his 24-year-old son committed suicide on Christmas Day. When you hear that, what does your mind do? I've got a son who's 23, another one who's 21. First thing my mind did was, how do I make sure it doesn't happen to my kid? Where did the pastor blow it? Did the pastor not call his son often enough? If that's the case, I'm going to get on the phone and call my boy right now. Did the pastor not write his boy often enough? Did he pester his boy with too many letters? Do you think like that? Are you as weird as I am? I trust you are. I'll feel much more comfortable. I don't know any of you, but I feel pretty comfortable that that is true. I want to find some way to live my life that puts me in control. I want to find some way that I can understand Christianity so that if I do X, Y, and Z, then certain things that I desire are going to happen. Are going to happen. Now, do you understand that when you approach life with this way of thinking, when you come into church on Sunday morning and you're saying, God, speak through my pastor so I can figure out how to handle my life so when I do this and this and this, that what I want is going to happen that basically you're putting yourself in a position where ultimately you become the judge of God. Does that make sense? Does that follow? C.S. Lewis put it well when he put it this way, the ancient man approached God as the accused person approaches the judge. For the modern man, the roles are reversed. Man is the judge and God is in the dock. Now man is quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease, man is ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is on the dock. There must be a way to reduce the mystery of life to manageable categories. And your people are going to be listening to you Sunday after Sunday to see if you're going to come up with the answers. A man that I'm working with now sat in my office last week and told me over the Christmas season that his sexual addiction got the best of him. And he and his wife, they're in their late 40s, early 50s. Their kids are all gone. This particular Christmas, no family was with them. And so he spent Christmas by renting 10 pornographic videos and watching them with his wife to enhance their sex life. He called his previous therapist in the middle of all this, and his therapist said, you're into your addiction. His question to me was, I want to find some way to unravel whatever is going on inside of me so I no longer have to struggle with this. Can you tell me exactly what to do? Now, he's sitting in a church of a friend of mine who preaches biblically every Sunday. Where do you suppose he's more expectant of getting help? Sunday morning from the pulpit or Wednesday morning in his recovery group? Why? How's he thinking? There's got to be some way to figure all this out 
So I can understand my past in a particular way. So I can grasp how my father let me down, which created a certain vulnerability inside of me. My masculinity is not felt very strongly. I'm afraid to approach my wife in certain ways. And looking at pornography gives me an illegitimate sense of masculinity. I've got to find some way to organize this and have a way out of it that I can manage. And on demand, the problems will be relieved. Pastor, do you have any answers for me? All you do is tell me it's wrong and trust in the power of the Spirit. You've got to do better than that got to be away. We're getting away from the need to trust in the character of God by finding strategies that we can control to make our lives work. As I understand the focus of many 12-step groups, it's not on the character of God, but rather on manageable categories for making life work, all done with God's help and blessing. That's the first trend. The second trend And this strikes me as interesting. It's an interesting shift. As I wandered through the CBA last last July, I noticed something that um, that struck me as significant, that there seemed to be fewer books on how to live biblically to stay out of bankruptcy, fewer books on how to live biblically to promote intimacy between you and your partner, fewer books on how to raise your kids so they turn out right, and most of the books that I discerned, at least, the trend is an obvious one, I suppose, most of the books had more to do with how to get your internal self together. The second trend is this. Since there are no guaranteed steps to making relationships work or to changing difficult circumstances into pleasant ones, since there are no guaranteed steps to making relationships work, and more and more people are acknowledging that, There are no guaranteed steps to changing difficult circumstances into pleasant ones. The only thing left to work on over which we have significant control is how we feel about ourselves. The only thing left to work on over which we have significant control is how we feel about ourselves. Your people, if they're reading any of the popular books coming from a lot of the Christian psychologists, are getting inundated with the notion that the number one priority is to find some way to restore a legitimate sense of self. And since there are no guaranteed steps, just to repeat myself, since there are no guaranteed steps to making relationships work or to changing difficult circumstances into pleasant ones, the only thing left to work on over which we have significant control is how we feel about ourselves. I attended this church on Sunday morning. We worshipped here together yesterday. And John preached on abortion. It was an excellent sermon. I'd say that if you weren't here. It was good. The sentence I'll not forget from that entire sermon was in his closing prayer. I've not told him this. In his closing prayer, after speaking on the fruits of darkness the deeds of darkness, the works of darkness. He made a clear distinction between fruits of light and the deeds of darkness. But after speaking on the works of darkness and suggesting that abortion is is certainly something which God is opposed to, that which is a a, a wicked wrong, in his closing prayer, he, he prayed along these lines. I can't recall the exact words, but the gist of it was this. Lord, there are no doubt some women in this room right now who have had abortions. What would his next sentence be? I would think in many churches the next sentence would be, Lord, help them to feel accepted. 
His next sentence was, Lord, help them to feel the sting of what they have done and to be driven to the embrace of Jesus. Now that's different. That reflects a higher priority than saying my number one priority is to restore a sense of value to my existence. The restoration of self has become the primary value in our day. That gentleman that um, took his life on Christmas Day, a 24-year-old young man, went to Moody Bible School, and 20 of his classmates, of his former classmates, came to the funeral. And they stayed, many of them, at the home, or they spent an evening at the home of a good friend of mine. And my friend told me just a few days ago that when she was with these 20 young people who were there to mourn the loss of their friend in Moody Bible days, that she was amazed as she listened into the conversation of these 20 young people. What you'd expect them to talk about, I presume, would be, we never thought it would happen. Or, we, we knew he was depressed, we didn't know it was that bad. Those would be the kind of sentences that I think I'd expect from the peers of this gentleman that took his life. But that wasn't what they said. You know what they said? The theme of the conversation was, at least he's out of the mess. I wish I had his courage, one person said. Aren't those sentences? Are those young people sitting in your church Sunday morning? What are they saying? Are they saying that life is such a chaotic mess that there's no way to put it together? Our only hope is somehow to reclaim some sense of personal value, some sense of worth, some restoration of our dignity as people in the middle of a confusing, chaotic world. Our only hope is to somehow relieve that terrible emptiness and pointlessness and poverty of relationship that is deeply felt. That's the only thing I can hope for, and I'm going to get it, and if I can't, then I'll check out. Is that happening in people sitting in your churches in the morning? It's true that all of us do live outside of the garden. C.S. Lewis put it well when he said that God gives us many resting places in our journey home, but he never allows us to mistake any of those resting places for home. We're out of the garden. A few months ago, well, no, it's more than that. Actually, February, that's a long time ago. My wife had a lump in her breast that was diagnosed by a needle biopsy as questionable. We went to the hospital one morning to have the lump removed. The surgeon insisted she remove the lump and do a more thorough biopsy. I was sitting in the waiting room as the surgeon was taking out this lump out of my wife's breast, and obviously I was praying praying hard, aware that um, came in the room and said um, in a rather clinical manner, but I didn't care how she said it. Everything's fine. You can take her home in half an hour. She's okay. She walked out. And as she said that, I can recall feeling for just a few moments, I think I'm back in the garden. Everything's okay. You ever been there before? That kind of a situation? Some of you had the bad news. I had good news. And I just was ecstatic. And when I went in to get my wife, she still had the anesthesia, the local anesthesia. She was feeling no pain. She got up. She got dressed. And I was so excited because she was healthy. I said, honey, well, let's celebrate anything you want. What do you want to do? She took advantage of this. 
Well, I was so happy. I was even willing to go antiquing. And I said, I'll buy you anything you want. You want that hutch? We'll find a way to get it. We'll buy anything you want. For a few moments, I felt like I was back in the garden. Ten days later, my brother was killed. We're never quite back in the garden. Have you noticed? The pain of living in this fallen world is very, very real. And what our culture is doing is defining the locus of that pain fundamentally in terms of a lost sense of self. We can't figure out this mess. We can't put the mess together out there. We can't make our relationships work. Let's now define a pain that we can somehow manage. Maybe we can reduce to manageable categories. Maybe we can find some steps to recovering a legitimate sense of our identity. And let's make that the central enterprise of life. It assumes, that particular position, assumes that loss of identity is centrally rooted, as the codependency folks have it, is centrally rooted in a dysfunctional background. The reason I don't feel good about myself, the central problem, has its central cause in a background where I've been told things about myself that aren't true, where maybe I've not been put into a heating vent for three days, but I've been shamed and demeaned. That recovery of identity is learning to battle the messages from that background. And many of your people who are reading the self-help books are coming Sunday morning saying that my number one priority above everything else is to recover a sense of identity because I can't make sense out of this world. I've got to at least feel good about myself. And the reason I don't feel good about myself is I've been raised in a background that's dysfunctional. And what I must learn to do is battle the messages from that background. Pastor, teach me things that God is saying about me that compete with what my parents and my other background factors have said about me and teach it in a way that's powerful enough to compete with those negative messages. Is that what you're giving your people Sunday morning? If you're not, then a lot of your people are going to be very dissatisfied with you. Should you accommodate to that felt need? Or do you need to reshape what's going on in people's hearts and minds, and then speak to that. When you take that position, when you honor that trend that the most important thing to do in this crazy world is to regain a sense of my own value, then the gospel becomes reduced, it seems to me, to the provision for help in that battle. The gospel becomes reduced to nothing more than an affirmation of human value. And one of the sentences that I've heard time and time again, a sentence that has some legitimacy to it, but it's not a central sentence, is that Christ died for me and that proves my value. As opposed to saying Christ died for me, that proves his love and my sinfulness. Did he die for a a non-valuable person? No, I bear the image. That gives me wonderful value. I understand that. But the central thought has to do with the fact that the death of Christ is atoning for my sin as opposed to affirming of my worth. It reflects God's worth, not mine. Although my worth is won in the process or reclaimed in the process. Trend number one, find a way to manage life. Trend trend number two, all that you really can manage is how you feel about yourself, so work on that. That's how a lot of folks are thinking these days. And by the way, just a little parenthesis, that's what I see in counseling all the time. Even folks who are coming from really good Bible-believing, Bible-preaching churches, when they come in my office for counseling, it almost always has to do with this. I, I haven't been able to make my life work. I'm really depressed. My wife has left me. I've got anorexia. I feel very discouraged about a variety of things. Real human hurts and needs to which we have to be sensitive, needs that I struggle with. I get discouraged a lot. 
I struggle with things. I struggle with temptations. All of us do. I've got problems. You've got problems. But these people are coming in, it seems to me, generally saying that I, 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 I can't understand how to put it all together and I'm not finding it in my church, so let me see if I can find it in counseling. Will you reduce the mystery of life to manageable categories? So I, and they don't say this, but they really mean this, so I don't have to get to know God well enough to trust Him implicitly. I want to have a strategy that will replace trust with my effort to make it all work. I want my world to be predictable manageable under my control. But I've kind of given up on that to some degree in terms of making my marriage work. I've come to realize no matter how I behave, I can't get my husband to stop drinking. I've come to realize no matter how much I uh, interact with my kids in certain ways, I can't get my daughter to be moral. I can't get my kid off drugs. I can't get this. I can't get that. So let's get down to the important things. In the middle of all of my failures, in the middle of my terrible background, will you help me find some way to at least restore a sense of my own value as a human being? Find a way to manage life, trend one. And all you really can manage is how you feel about yourself, so work on that trend too. The third trend. Given how badly we've all been hurt, the third thoughtful trend, the trend in thinking, given how badly we've all been hurt, no one can blame you for devoting your energy to finding yourself. Given how badly we've all been hurt, no one can blame you for devoting your energy to finding yourself. Wouldn't you feel that way if you'd been locked into a heating vent for three days? Or sold your landlord every month for five years? Wouldn't internally you say something like this? If somebody knew what I've endured... If anybody really understood the pain that I feel in the core of my being, if anybody really understood how badly I feel, then they would applaud as opposed to judge me for devoting all of my resources to repairing the wound, given how severe the wound is. Don't we all regard pain as the great justifier of action? If somebody right now in the middle of this lecture, we're almost at an end, but if somebody at this point in the lecture were to stand up and scream and run out the door, we'd all have a variety of reactions. But I presume that we'd be at least curious. And if we found out that the person had a sudden attack of a kidney stone, would anybody rebuke him for being rude to the rest of us? Well, of course not. Because that kind of pain justifies efforts to relieve it. And that's how we think morally, that if there's a deep pain in my soul, and I'll catch this phrase, a pain that God hasn't protected me from, then I'm justified in doing whatever is required to see to it that that pain gets relieved. There was a woman who approached me, oh, it's been about two, three years ago, I guess now. She told me that she was in a church on a Wednesday night at a choir practice, and she was the last person to leave the church that night in the middle of a fairly large city. And she went into the parking lot. It was dark. She was the last one. Her car was in the parking lot, the last car. And a, a teenage boy, a 16, 17-year-old boy, abducted her at gunpoint when she left the building and took her away for a full 24 hours and required her to commit vile sexual acts on threat of death. And she didn't want to, but she cooperated to avoid getting shot. He had a gun to her head. And she involved herself in some terrible sexual acts. She comes to you, Pastor, for counseling. What are you going to do? What are you going to tell her? How do you talk about that? 
Well, she went to a counselor who has taken David Seaman's work on healing of memories, much of which I think is very much to be applauded. I think it has some weaknesses and much to be applauded. But he went to, she went to a counselor who took his work and trivialized it badly. And what she told me happened when she went to this counselor. The counselor said, what we're going to do is we're going to visualize, I'm going to have you visualize all the things that happened to you during the 24 hours, and I want you to visualize Jesus there caring. Her response was, that's my problem. I believe he was there and he didn't do anything. You see, ever since Adam and Eve sinned, we all have inherited a legacy to wonder if God is all that good. Is he withholding? What should Adam have done when Eve brought him the fruit? There's some debate on this. My understanding is that when the scriptures say that Eve turned to Adam who was with her and gave him to eat of the fruit, that it's very possible that Adam was there the whole time Eve was being tempted. There's some support in the text for that particular position. A huge question to ask is if he was there while the serpent was tempting Eve, why didn't he talk? And men ever since shut up at all the wrong times. What's the major complaint of women? When Adam was given the fruit to eat, what should he have done? Well, I don't know. But I suppose one thing he should have done, at least, was to honor the biblical absolute that he had received from God, the, the absolute from God directly communicated to him, not the biblical absolute in that case, but the, obviously the word of God. And he should have gone to God and said something like this, God, I'm in a pickle. My woman has just done such and such, and we got a problem, but I'm going to throw myself upon your goodness, and whatever you choose to do, I'm at your disposal. Rather than that, he had a better plan. He took, he took a bite of the fruit. We have a great struggle with believing that God is good. And as a result, our basic mood is this, that my self-centered efforts to take care of my own soul are ultimately very, very justified. And pastor, don't you dare moralize to me. Don't reduce the Christian life to, to moralism. Don't you tell me, given what I'm going through in my marriage, that I'm supposed to treat my wife in a particular way. Yeah, I know Ephesians 5 is coming up in your expository series, but please take into account the fact that in my particular situation, I'm justified in some very deep ways in working to preserve my own soul, given the pain that I've gone through married to that particular woman, to that particular man. I would suggest that the people we're preaching to today in our culture are people who are thinking along these three lines. First, find a way to manage life. That's our principal purpose. Second, if you can't manage it very well, at least feel good about yourself. That's our principal priority. And third, do whatever it takes to achieve relief. That's our principal value. As I see it in our culture, because of a movement that reflects some of that thinking and appeals to people who are vulnerable to ideas growing out of that thinking, we're in danger of losing a biblical view of sin. And someone has said centuries ago that all heresy has its beginning in a weak and feeble view of sin. 
We see ourselves as more troubled than sinful. The cross becomes more affirmational than atoning. God becomes more useful than awesome. Worthy to be called in for help. Otherwise, not terribly worthy of worship. Mercy becomes less valued than immediate blessing. And we therefore become more demanding than grateful. The danger within my heart is to become reactionary to these concerns and somehow to become terribly insensitive to the reality of human suffering, women that have been taken off for 24 hours and forced to commit terrible acts, women that have been stuffed in heating vents for three days. How do we maintain real sensitivity to the reality of human suffering but steer clear of efforts to help that reflect some of these trends in thinking that maybe have their problems biblically. Tomorrow morning's presentation, I want to look at codependency's answers to this suffering. And I want to express concern with their answers, but also, I hope, expressing sensitivity to the reality of the suffering that people are experiencing. In the last lecture, then, I'll present my understanding of how we can deal with the real needs that are going on in people's hearts. Let me pray. Father, our concern is to submit ourselves to yourself. Lord, we're grateful that as we lose ourselves in Jesus Christ, that we do find ourselves. You want us to find ourselves, but you want us to make it our priority to find you, to know you, to experience in you, to glorify you, to enter into relationship with you, somehow believing that you are fully good and that finding you will satisfy the deepest longings of our souls. Father, teach us not to come in a crass, utilitarian sense to use you, demanding that you do certain things, but teach us that you're to be worshipped above everything else. And that as we seek you and find you, that many problems do go away, but some problems continue. But give us the confidence that all problems that interfere with our usefulness to you will be resolved so that we can become even more useful for your purposes and more aware of our fellowship with yourself. Father, take these scattered and weak thoughts and use them for the blessing of your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We have a few minutes for questions. And I'm happy to entertain any questions or comments that you might have for just a few minutes. And John is sitting here to rescue me as soon as the questions become abusive. Yes, sir. Yes. Say the last uh, sentence again. Didn't hear your last sentence. Okay. Question is, have I read Jeff Van Vonderen's book, Trying Hard to Measure Up? Is that the right title? Trying? Tired of Trying to Measure Up. Um, Jeff is a local pastor in the Minneapolis area, as I understand. Um, we had a seminar at his church just a year or two ago. Yes, I have read the book. It's been um, maybe a year and a half or two years. I'm not sure if I can give a, a strong critique, but I think I do understand the basic thought that he's coming at. He's saying that the central difficulty that he wants to address is what he calls, and John Bradshaw before him and many others have called, a shame-based identity. 
um, a, a sense of yourself as bad on the basis of how you've been demeaned by dysfunctional background forces. The central thought in his thinking, as I understand it, and in Sandy Wilson's book, Released from Shame, and in uh, Pat Springle's book, he's with the Rafa uh, Hotel, uh, the Rafa, Rafa Hospital, Mental Hospital Movement, Christian Mental Hospital Movement based in Houston. Um, all these folks are coming from the same perspective, and they're saying something that I think is addressing a very real problem, but is not central. The problem they're addressing is this. They're saying that we see ourselves as bad for illegitimate reasons. And um, the illegitimate reason that we see ourselves as bad is very important to realize that codependency argue that we're uh, codependency theorists argue that we're bad because we've not been able to perform in a way that has gotten our parents to treat us in certain ways. The fact that I'm bad, I see myself as bad because I wasn't a pretty enough girl to get dad to, to spend time with me. I wasn't, a, uh, I wasn't a good enough ball player for dad to come to my ball games and he put me down for being a klutz and being cut from the team. And, uh, and therefore, as I look in the mirror of my parents, I get these messages that I'm bad, but in fact, that message is invalid and I see myself as bad only because um, I've not been able to perform in a way to get somebody to approve of me. And that's the, that's the thesis from which he operates. And I think he has a very valid point in human behavior because you all would know, it's common knowledge, that uh, take a child who's been sexually abused, a young girl who's been sexually abused, which is easier for her to conclude that her dad is wicked and wrong for what he's done or that somehow she's at fault and she's bad and that's why it happened. Which is more natural to conclude from sexual abuse? The latter, right? Why? I mean, that's not true, is it? She wasn't sexually abused because she was a provocative little girl who invited her dad to molest her. She was sexually abused because her dad was wrong. He shouldn't have done that. Whatever the reasons, dynamics, and all that, her dad shouldn't have done that, and she is legitimately a victim of sexual abuse. No question about that. But my question is, why doesn't she see it that way? What is, so, what is, what is ingrained in human nature that makes a little girl conclude that somehow it's her fault? Now, I think this is what Jeff is getting at. I think he's making a valid point when he basically, or at least I'll put it in my language, maybe it's not his, my language is this, and I don't think this would be the way he put it actually, um, that I think that little girl concludes that she's the bad person, not merely because she's a victim, now she is a victim, but the reason she concludes that she's bad is because if she can conclude that the source of her pain is something that she can go to work on, then there's hope. If I can no longer be bad, if I can get better, if I can be more moral, and that's the girl who as an adult becomes the most prudish girl in the world and would never wear an article of clothing that would ever show her feminine shape or be in any way seductive, she goes so far the other way to always be totally pure that she lives under the pressure of never doing anything that might be interpreted as sensual. And she's saying, I've now found a way to preserve my soul if I can just be entirely asexual. Now, where did that come from? That attitude. I would argue that that attitude essentially comes from my commitment, me being that young woman now, my commitment to find some way to make my life work. That's the energy of depravity. I believe that it's depravity, it's the energy which says, I'm going to make my life work apart from God, that requires her, that she's internally required, to conclude that what is, what is, what is wrong here is something I can go to work on, which is me, now I'll go to work on me. Now, I think that if that's what's happening, then I think that that woman needs more for her healing than affirmation. Needs more for her healing than release from demands. Needs more for her healing than the message that because of the gospel, there are no demands on you and you are just fully accepted and that's all that you need to hear. I think she needs to hear more than that. 
I think she needs to hear that there's something within you that is, that is, that is wanting to hold this bad self-image, if you will. I don't buy the mirror view of developing a bad self-image. That I develop an image based on the mirror that I see in a person's reflection. I hold the functional view of image development, which is that a bad image has a function to preserve me somehow and keeping my soul alive in the middle of a painful world. If I acknowledge that it's bad that's bad and the world is at fault and that there really is nobody out there that I can turn to the way I want to turn to, then I'm stuck with God and the natural soul doesn't want to be there. So to me, it's depravity, which is interacting with victimization to lead to all of her problems, and the biblical counselor must take into account of both. And I don't think that that book takes into account the side of depravity in an ongoing way. That's my major critique of the book. What else? Oh, dear. I just made it up. I have no idea. Let me think. Where have I written about that? Um, I don't. I don't know if I've written about that particular point the way I've just said it. Yep, that'll be repeated. question, as I hear it, is that um, if a person is hurting, isn't, isn't that a rather ineffective time to, to exhort obedience? No. What, I, what I'm trying to get across or ask is, you can't excuse the problem that they're, that they're dealing with, and there is this, this need to know God, as you mentioned earlier. But somewhere, the husband is still saying, my sexual needs is not being fulfilled. She's hurting because she would like to fulfill him sexually, but can't. She's all messed up inside. And once she realizes, I need to know God, I need to depend upon God, and yet I, I want to, but every time I, I move towards my husband or he moves towards me, I want to throw up. Yeah. What do you do in the practical Two minutes. The question is um, an awfully important question, which gets to the core of a lot of the a lot of the concerns that all of us have. That um, just to repeat the question for the sake of those who couldn't hear. That, that the woman who has been badly abused, um, who would very much like to be there for her husband sexually, but feels uh, an internal deadness or tightness or nausea, repulsion when she moves toward the sexual situation. Um, uh, what, what are the implications of what I'm saying in dealing with that particular woman? Is that a fair restatement of your question? Okay. And, um, and let, me, let me just say what I can in just a moment. Again, I, I trust the next couple lectures will address it a little bit more. But very briefly, what I would not want to be heard as saying, and I don't think you're hearing me say this, but let me just clarify, what I would not want to be heard as saying is to somehow moralize in a way which is insensitive to the fact that there are legitimate deep wounds going on in that particular woman's soul that need to be thought through. And I think that a lot of the right-wing reactionary folks in this field are coming up with a very moralistic positions and saying the issue is forgiveness, the issue is depression, 
depravity, the issue of sin, you're accountable. First Corinthians 7 says that your body belongs to your husband and your husband's body belongs to you. Now, you can't, except for prayer and fasting, you've got to get involved sexually. Now, go do it in the power of God. And I think that's just going to introduce tremendous frustration and not be healing at all. So I would not want to be interpreted as saying that at all. Um, On the other hand, what I am suggesting is that when you get into that woman's soul, and I'm willing to get into her soul, my first sentence would not be, well, here's what you must do. My first sentence would be, I'd like to take an inside look. I think there is a value of, of looking beneath the surface. Um, and looking into the core of the human soul, the Word of God is a, a, a sharp two-edged sword which divides the thoughts and intents of the heart. And that the purposes of a man's heart are like deep waters. We don't see what our real agendas are. And it's wise, it seems to me, and not psychological, but biblically required, to take a deep look into that woman's soul and to understand the processes happening, with, happening within her. And to face the pain and to have her enter the reality of how badly she's been disappointed. I would have no struggle with doing any of that, and I do all of that. But in the middle of all that, what I'd be looking to expose more than the fact that she's wounded and needs healing, although I'm willing to expose that because that's true. But I want to expose that within that woundedness, there's a rage. And that rage is growing out of something other than her victimization. And that rage needs to be thought through as to what is her attitude toward God. I would argue that the central dynamic in the entire human personality is not the dynamics... John 3.16, just to make sure I'm right here. I know that's inerrant. I would argue that, um, that the central dynamic that each of us as pastors, counselors, friends, disciples need to deal with is, is, is not the dynamic of how our dysfunctional world has wounded us, but rather the dynamic of, of what is happening in our attitude toward God in the middle of all that. And when that gets exposed, now you're getting into the core issues where I think issues of sin and forgiveness and repentance become apparent. And when those get dealt with, and I think there is a restoration of a sense of her own value as a woman, which then does free her to be able to move toward her husband sexually. And that might be a 10-month process. is my reason for living is not fulfillment. The fulfillment that comes in that particular way, that's a legitimate desire, but it's a very illegitimate demand. And my, my ultimate goal is to please God, and am I willing to forego legitimate pleasures that I have not a right to, but a legitimate longing for? Am I willing to forego those in, the, in a willingness to minister to my wife? In the very same sense that if a wife were physically harmed in some way and sex were no longer possible, what does a man do then? For the rest of his life. He can't have sex with his wife. What does he do? Well, he gives it up. And that's a hard calling. And this man must give up that on behalf of his wife if that's the right thing to do as you think things through. That might be playing into her hands in some illegitimate ways. All kind of possibilities. Time for one more quick, real quick one. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that concerns me is uh, I wonder, and you probably address this, but I wonder if... Some of what you said doesn't reflect maybe a, I would question an incomplete view of the fall. A little bit of what I hear you saying is that the fall did not damage mankind psychologically. And if we just deal with the sin issue, then the whole psychology falls into place. And isn't that assuming that one, mankind wasn't damaged psychologically in the fall? I don't think that's true biblically. Number two, I also hear you saying somewhat that sin really... When sin is done to you, it really doesn't damage you that much psychologically. 
And it's like we have real empathy for the person with the kidney stone who runs out and say, we can understand his pain and his misbehavior. But if a psychologist, well, let's just trust God. And, and that, I'm concerned that those are weak views of the fall and of the impact of sin in our lives. And the question, just to repeat for those who couldn't hear, is that am I teaching something which might reflect a weak view of the fall, that the fall did not affect man's uh, psychological being very thoroughly, and that um, when man is sinned against, when little girls and little boys are uh, badly abused, that the impact of that is not really all that profound, and that um, we, we are right in minimizing the impact of abuse and saying that all is required is simply to trust God. I think my biggest fear is that I'll be heard saying that. Because that's not what I want to say. I, I deeply believe that when, um, when, when that kind of abuse takes place that I've described, and we all have our horror stories, that I think the impact is profound. And I think there's a profound impact on that little girl's ability to trust there's a profound impact on her sense of um, whether she can be enjoyed as a woman in a legitimate sense of that term, or that boy who's been demeaned by his shaming father is going to have a real struggle with a sense of masculinity. There's real damage to his soul, to his psychological being, whatever words you might want to use. Do I believe that those damages are very, very real? Yeah, I really, really do. The basic point I think I'm making tonight is while I'm willing to, to acknowledge that those problems are very, very deep and very, very real, I want to argue that as real as they are, there is something further that requires even more attention. If I go into a physician with a terrible migraine headache, I don't want him to say, well, your migraine headache's no big problem, you got a worse one. What I want him to say is, your migraine headache is killing you. I mean, maybe not literally, but it's really hurting you terribly badly, and I'm concerned about the pain in your head, but I've also discerned a spot in your lung. And while I'm gonna, I want to deal with that migraine, I've got a much worse problem that really needs to be dealt with. And that's what I'm wanting to, that's what I'm wanting to emphasize. And I don't want to be heard as, as coming up with some sort of a simplistic, well, just trust God and things will be fine. I think it's a far more, I, I think ultimately that's true, but I think putting that into operation is no simple matter. It's kind of a, what happens between getting saved and getting glorified. We kind of learn what, what that's all about. And that takes a fair amount of time and a fair amount of work and a fair amount of um, struggle and failure and problem along the way and encouragement. So I don't want to suggest at all that there's a, there's a weakness, uh, that, that, um, that the, the impact of the fall on my soul has been profound. I think there has been. I could tell some personal stories about things in me that I think uh, um, have been very difficult. I'll tell you one real quick one. Uh, this is a simple one. It's not a very horrible story. When I was an eighth grader, I played in a Saturday morning basketball league, and uh, my father, who was a semi-pro athlete in his day, wasn't able to come to any of my games until one Saturday when he did. And I was the tallest kid in eighth grade. I was my present height when I was in eighth grade, and I never grew since. Um, and the ball was tipped to me. Dad was in the stands for the first time ever. The ball was tipped to me. I got the ball, and I ran down the court and sunk a layup in the other team's basket. Now, what did I feel? Does the word shame fit? Sure it does. Now, that, that's a minor thing next to horrible sexual abuse sorts of things, but I recall not wanting to look at my father and to see his eyes. I didn't want to do that. And I would argue that not just because of that one event, but that event is a symbol, I've had a real struggle in taking the ball in situations where I'm not sure of myself. And there's been a lot of things that I tend to avoid doing that I really am responsible to do simply because I'm afraid I'll take the ball and put it in the wrong basket. So I figure out where I'm pretty good and stay there, which has narrowed my options some, and I've worked real hard in the, you know, where I'm good. Everything else I'll let go. And I would argue that if I came to you and told you that and gave you my history, and if you said to me something like, well, whatever God calls you to do, just do it, whether you feel shame or not, 
I would say you're a very insensitive, unbiblical counselor because the effect is far more profound in my soul than that. But I would argue that if all you do is deal with the shame and make that my central problem, then I think you've missed, you've missed the point of what's happening in my life. Thanks for listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. To learn more, visit LargerStory.com.